Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Adam Sepulveda, who's a research scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Northern Rocky Mountain Science Center in Bozeman, Montana. He was here to talk about a program called ReadyNet, which is an environmental DNA-based system that was recently funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill as a priority for addressing aquatic invasive species. But I'll let him tell you more about it, so let's go straight to the interview. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, James. Happy to be here and excited to share uh, some information about our science. Okay, so I thought we might start with a little bit of a discussion about eDNA. Uh, it's been discussed on the show before, but if you could just give us a brief overview of what that technology is and you know, kind of how it's being put to work. Great. Uh, so, there, uh, so environmental DNA, eDNA, E stands for the environment. It is a, a mixture of intracellular and extracellular DNA produced by organisms. And this could be bacteria, this could be uh, fish, this could be frogs. Uh, so any kind of organism is producing that DNA and they're releasing it into the environment. So I, I'm an aquatic ecologist, so I often think about environmental DNA in rivers, streams, and lakes. So the way I like to imagine it or describe it is a fish uh, 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 kind of releasing slime, mucus feces that get into the the water column um, and that dna is then kind of uh, uh, either floating or in suspension in that water column so that's environmental dna and then there is actually the technique of environmental dna so that's how we actually sample and collect that floating or suspended dna in the water uh, so that is a way of, of gathering that dna into a water sample uh, at my lab, we often use uh, filters to concentrate that DNA. Other groups use uh, different mechanisms to collect and concentrate that DNA. Uh, but So we collect it, we concentrate it, and then we use PCR techniques to try to amplify that DNA so that it gets to an amount or an abundance that we can visualize and count and correctly associate with a specific taxa or specific species. So in this setting, it's kind of you know, giving you an idea of what's in the water. Yeah, or more, you know, the, the important nuance there is what DNA is in the water. Right. Uh, we know that uh, um, it is possible for uh, whether it's a, if you think about a river that, you know, obviously flows downstream, there could be a fish species kilometers upstream that releases DNA and that DNA floats downstream and we collect that DNA downstream, uh, even though that species is not present at that site or at oftentimes it could be dna that's transferred by things like birds so if a bird eats a fish in a different lake and then flies over and it could drop uh, dna from a different fish into that river via feces so the important distinction here is it's dna that's present at that site um, which is not always one and the same as a species being present at that site so we use that information to infer species presence uh, but not necessarily to uh, say species are present. So it's an indirect inference. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit yep. about uh, ReadyNet and how it deploys this technology. You know, how is how does that approach you know kind of put this to work? Yeah, great. Maybe I'll just start off by saying what is ReadyNet. That's a good. Uh, place. So this is a uh, uh, a U.S. Geological Survey program that is being developed to support a larger Department of Interior initiative to uh, uh, really bolster our ability for early detection of things like aquatic invasive species. And so the ReadyNet program is focused on um, 
developing workflows that uh, try to fully take advantage of automated technologies uh, in environmental DNA. And so what ReadyNet stands for is Rapid eDNA Assessment and Deployment Initiative and Network. And what we're trying to do here is uh, recognize that uh, anything, including environmental DNA, um, is really hard to capture if it's rare in the environment. So if we have a new invasive species that hasn't been in a lake or reservoir or river that long, then that means it hasn't produced that much DNA into the river, that much environmental DNA. And so we need to come up with these technologies that are able to sample more consistently across time and technologies that we can get into many different locations. Uh, that way we're better, better able to find the needle in the haystack. And robots are what we call auto samplers. They're kind of uh, used as synonyms right now since the auto samplers uh, uh, take advantage of robotic technologies. Um, so these robots allow us to be out in the field at times uh, you know, when uh, it's not safe for us to be in the field or at times when we'd rather be doing other things like maybe uh, going out and, and uh, trying to collect fish samples uh, um, so we can have these robots sampling and, and really trying to maximize the amount of information we're learning. And so the ReadyNet program is trying to develop these technologies. And by develop, I think maybe a better word is optimize. These technologies have been in existence for a while, um, but they have really been um, intended for research and development purposes. They have not been optimized for application implementation. So in other words, they're not easy to use. Right. Um, yeah. I'd like to jump back and talk about, you know, the history of ReadyNet in just a moment. But before we do that, since you mentioned them, um, let's talk a little bit about the robots. Uh, you know, when I, when I think of a robot, I'm thinking of R2-D2 or something like that. Uh, these are obviously quite different from that. So, you know, what are the robots like that you're using to you know, sample water sources? Yeah, a great question. So there's a handful of different um, uh, NGOs and private companies that that have already developed or are developing these robotic auto samplers for environmental DNA. The group that we have been working with is uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute and Bari. Uh, but my program has also been working with other groups like Smith and Root, um, who have also developed some of these auto sampling technologies. But in its uh, kind of simplest way to describe it, uh, uh, kind of based on what the Monterey Bay group has done and Bari, it's uh, uh, they, they call it a lab in a can. So you can kind of picture a large 50 gallon uh, drum, oil drum. And inside that oil drum is a uh, um, uh, very complicated but robust uh, water sample filtration system. Uh, so it is uh, um, bringing water in from the ocean, from the lake, from a river bring it in bring it inside of this can it's pushing that water through a filter uh, usually the filter size we we tend to use the pore size is uh, um, less than 10 micrometers can be as small as uh, 0.25 micrometer depending on what you're trying to target so it's pushing water through that filter there's then a robotic arm that moves that filter sample over to a different place uh, within that 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 canister where um, a type of preservative called RNA later is, is uh, uh, injected or squirted over that filter to preserve it. 
And then that robotic arm is again moving that filter and putting it into a, a new carousel or canister where the older or where the already spent filters are located. And then for the next sample, that robotic arm goes and grabs a new filter, puts it over so it's in line with the, the, uh, the water tube that's bringing in water from the environment, then to RNA later, then to the spent. And so over and over and over again. Uh, some of the important things about these auto samplers are that you can program to sample at whatever schedule you want, whether that's uh, 10 times a day or once a month for 10 months. Uh, the samples remain stable and in high quality for months on end uh, because they are preserved with that RNA later, but also the entire uh, atmosphere or environment of that can is anaerobic uh, uh, as a means to minimize any type of DNA decay. Um, and importantly, a lot of these automated samplers have two-way communication. And so you get an update when it collects a sample and it provides information with how much water uh, was filtered for that sample. So you get some measure of, of QAQC uh, remotely from your desktop. It also alerts you when there's a problem. Uh, it also alerts you, uh, uh, you know, potentially when there's changes in the environment. So you can link these auto samplers to other um, uh, kind of uh, autonomous units that provide information about water quality, water like, like water temperature, like turbidity, conductivity, that maybe have some type of biological context to inform your sampling. Or maybe you're just telling you, hey, it's raining and it's really turbid, you're not gonna be able to sample much. Or if your target that you're looking for, maybe it's something like E. coli, um, hey, this is a good time to sample because all of a sudden it's raining and it's washing a lot of that E. coli from, uh, uh, you know, the uh, local sewers and streets into the river. And so that, that may be an appropriate time to sample. So these auto samplers are doing a bunch of things, including, and most importantly, including collecting a high quality sample. Okay, that makes sense. So you've got, you know, you already have existing infrastructure in the, the water body. Um, and then, you know, this gives you a chance to link in something else that makes it so that you can take some samples and, you know, later analyze yep. it and, you know, f check the presence of DNA. Yep. And I guess the one thing I wanted to add here is at this point in time, these are auto samplers, not auto analyzers. So we still have to bring that sample back to the lab for the PCR analysis to actually get our information about what DNA is present. Um, there's a lot of groups working on the, the auto analysis or auto sampling and auto analysis. So those technologies are in the R&D stage right now, uh, but this auto sampling, eDNA auto sampling technology uh, is, uh, you know, kind of moving out of the R&D stage and uh, moving into the implementation and application stage. Yeah, that makes sense. What's the advantage of using this sort of auto sampling technique versus, um, you know, what was I, I would assume done historically of, you know, having a, a grad student or somebody else go out there and, you know, dip a dip a cup in the water? Um, what, yep. what advantage do you get with this approach? You know, I think uh, um, the, the thing that we really like to underscore um, is that it provides us with a standardized way to collect a sample. And so in doing so, we minimize uh, human error or what we call in stats observer error. Um, and at that point, you know, we really only have to um, account for measurement error, which we have models to do. It's much easier to account for measurement error than it is observer, observer error. 
So that's one of the most important things with these auto samplers, these robots, is that it makes our field methods standardized and consistent across space and time. The other things that, you know, that are, I think, also equally as important, especially when you have limited uh, uh, personnel or money to pay for sampling, is that uh, you can leave these robots out for uh, days, weeks, months on end to collect your samples. And so you save a lot of the human costs of, uh, uh, or, you know, the, the logistic, logistical costs of getting humans out to the remote site. In Montana, where I live, um, you know, it, it takes 12 to 14 hours to drive across the state. Um, and right. so if that is, you know, if you're sampling at a distant location, so, you know, maybe that is, uh, I'm in Bozeman near Yellowstone National Park. If I wanted to get samples up near Glacier National Park, that's seven to eight hours. Um, I could go up there one time, uh, deploy these robotic samplers, come back to Bozeman the next three months. And because I have that two-way communication, I could help inform when it samples, and then I can come back into season, grab that sampler. So it saves a lot of uh, time and money in the kind of personnel, uh, uh, you know, uh, cost savings. Um, and it frees me up to do other things, whether that's uh, writing papers or analyses, or hopefully, you know, doing other types of field work to either complement those data or to do things that robots and auto samplers aren't yet capable of doing. Um, you know, from the DNA, we don't learn anything about, um, you know, uh, male-female ratios, size, condition. Uh, it's questionable at this time how much we actually can glean about abundance and density. So we can be out there doing, uh, getting other complementary lines of, of evidence um, and let the robot filter away. Um, I, I didn't go to college just to, to filter. It's, it's not hard. Um, it's loud. It becomes very tedious. Uh, so let's let you know the the auto sampler and the robots do that for us. Okay, great. I think we've we've, we've hit a good moment to talk about you know the network side of this because you know Net is in the name of the program. Yeah. What's envisaged for that? What's the ultimate idea of you know kind of um, linking you know all this data together? Yeah. So I think we can think about network in a couple of different ways. The first is just thinking about the landscape. Um, you know, I again I, I'm a spend most of my time in rivers, so flowing environments. And we know, uh, you know, everything flows downstream, whether it's DNA or, or you know, or, or whatever. Um, you know, one of the things we really want to be able to glean um, from an early detection program is not only, you know, what is here, but where is it? So when we get a DNA detection, we don't really have any insight if the organ if if there is an organism there indeed if this is indicative of organism presence is that organism five meters upstream of our sample or 500 meters upstream of our sample that's clearly really important if we were to do some you know if, if the manager that we send those data to was to decide to do some type of response they need to know where to go um, and so by uh, linking these auto samplers in a network fashion and here that means you know, this is a hypothetical, but having them maybe at 200 meter distances or 500 meter distances, we can take some of that eDNA data results about when we get our detection and where we get our detection, link that to models to help infer where is a likely source that produced that DNA, um, or at least narrow down where those sources are likely to be. And then we can provide information to managers of, of where they should go out 
and start to do uh, you know these more kind of visual based survey efforts. So in fisheries, maybe that means backpack electrofishing or netting. Uh, maybe it means application of a, a herbicide or a piscicide. Uh, piscicide being a, a fish poison, herbicide being a, a plant poison if you're out there looking for a, a nuisance weed. Uh, so if we were able to put them out in a network fashion, we help to ensure that we are not undersampling, we don't have gaps, and we get information to help inform where that uh, DNA production source is more likely to be. So that's one aspect of a network. I can talk about the other network that we're thinking of. Sure. Um, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and tell us about that network? The, the other component of the network is uh, the lab network. Uh, so uh, one of the uh, great things about environmental DNA analyses and technologies is that uh, we can have fairly rapid turnaround time in labs with results. So once we get the lab, or once we get the sample back to the lab, uh, we can have results, you know, for sure within 48 hours um, if we have nothing in the queue. Um, but that tends not to happen because there's not that many environmental DNA labs yet. And environmental DNA has become a very popular um, technique. And so oftentimes uh, there is a delay in the lab of, of uh, days, if not weeks and months. And so all of a sudden, this information which you're hoping to use to inform early detection um, is, is no longer that. And so one of the critical things here is also creating a laboratory network that uh, can execute these workflows or these protocols in a verifiable, credible way. You know, so ensuring repeatability and reproducibility, uh, linking them with managers or different projects that are using these auto samplers so they have an immediate place to send these samples where they know they can get a very fast turnaround time and have a, uh, and have high confidence and trust in those data results. So the other element then of ReadyNet is that laboratory network, which is critical for supporting the robotic sampling network. Okay, that's really cool. Um, let's chat yeah. now and maybe walk through a hypothetical example of, you know, having discussed all the, the various parts that are going into this, um, you know, in, our, in a real world practical sense, what might it look like, you know, from the deployment to detection to, you know, perhaps a management response, uh, you know, not necessarily anything that's happened already, but, um, you know, as these parts are kind of put together and put to work, uh, what kind of results are we looking to see? Great, um, great question. I'll say that the first step for any of this, um, before we get uh, deploy a, a robot or these auto samplers into the environment is a communication plan. So we wanna make sure that, um, you know, if USGS is, is the, the scientific group helping out with the research, that we are working with, talking to the appropriate jurisdictional authorities. So in that case, you know, if we're talking about here in the state of Montana, that would be a group like Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, who has jurisdictional authority over streams and rivers and lakes in the state. So we wanna make sure we have them on board and informed and also any other critical stakeholders and partners so that everyone is aware of what's gonna happen. Everyone is aware of who talks to who given results you know, how that information is disseminated so that there is uh, time for situa situational awareness if there is a, a, a detection of an aquatic invasive species. Um, you know, 
in a way to kind of uh, build and maintain an environment of no surprises. So that's the first step in all of this. Uh, the second step is, uh, you know, just to kind of, uh, I guess, again, underscore here, USGS is not a land management agency. So we uh, go out and, and uh, do science to help uh, inform other land management agencies, whether that's the Park Service or Bureau of Land Management, um, oftentimes state agencies. So for any deployment, we are we would be working with some type of land management agency that has a need. We're not going to just be running around doing this. Uh, uh, we kind of have to wait till we have a a partner that that needs assistance, needs help. So once all those boxes are checked, we then can move forward and work with that those uh, managers and stakeholders to figure out you know what are their objectives. Are you looking for a new invasive species in this uh, water basin? Or are you just trying to track the spread of one that already exists? Um, so we really have to have a really good idea of what the question is so that we can develop the appropriate monitoring network. Um, it's not a one size fits all, you know, just like everything, you know, gotta, gotta have the question and then come up with the methods that are appropriate to the question. Yeah, this one's interesting. It sounds like it's in large part, a, you know, an effort of, of communication and, you know, human interaction and, and you know, relationship building to, to, you know, kind of put that together so that, um, you know, you're actually supporting the managers in a way that allows them to, you know, take action that's appropriate for what are probably a unique set of circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll go back to something I said earlier that in environmental DNA detection, is it is a indirect means of inferring species presence. Um, and so we get these detection results, uh, you know, hypothetical, uh, all of a sudden we detect a new invasive species. It is ultimately up to the jurisdictional authority how they want to react to that. Um, because we do not have the, the quintessential bird in hand to show them uh, that something is there. We just have, uh, you know, indirect way to show, to say, hey, like, the smoke alarm is going off, you may want to have another look. Um, you may want to think about what you want to do to respond to this. Um, but we don't have that burden hand to say, you know, 100% without a doubt, there is an invasive species here and it's causing a problem. So it really is kind of this, this first line, smoke detector-like way of, of saying, hey, there is a potential for something here. Consider uh, allocating some additional resources to get more information. Okay, so and then you do you support them with you know decision support tools and and you know kind of ways that they might um, you know make a management decision on the basis of that early smoke alarm type signal. Uh, we are prepared to. So sure. That that is really uh, you know kind of up to how that manager uh, what they want, right? What kind of support they need. Uh, so USGS, you know, uh, um, and the USGS Environmental DNA Program beyond this ReadyNet program has really put a focus on developing decision support tools. Um, for, for many things, including eDNA. So we have those tools in hand to help provide information about, you know, uh, uh, what is the likelihood that something is actually here, even if we fail to detect it. You know, so we, we develop decision support tools that are informed by uh, potential for false negatives, informed by potential for false positives, uh, informed by uh, thinking about alternative consequences, uh, so we have a, a slate of different decision support tools to help managers. Um, if 
you know, if, if that's a step that they want to go. Okay. And so let's say, um, you know, for instance, that um, you detect something that's uh, in a place where you would not historically have seen it or you wouldn't want it to be because, it, you know, it's sure. invasive for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, you, you pass this information along to the managers. Uh, you know, is there a benefit for that being an early detection event? And then what kinds of things can they do to address it? For me, at least, when I think about invasive species, a lot of times it seems like inevitability. And I think that's just pure ignorance on my part of not knowing what kinds of things people might do. Uh, but what sorts of actions are then available once you, you know, find something again? where it shouldn't be yeah uh, great question uh you know so the actions that are the, the the tools that that managers have are as you say very limited um you know we seldom have uh, uh silver bullets to to get rid of something once it exists uh you know a great example of that would be the invasive lake trout in yellowstone lake that have been a problem since i think the late 80s um and you know they have tried many many different things to uh, uh, to reduce lake trout populations, and they've been successful, but it's likely they will never bring them down to zero. Um, and that's the case for many invasive species. We have a lot of tools. I'm sorry, we have few tools. Um, those tools we tend to have aren't great at eradication, so bringing it to zero, but they can help uh, bring the numbers down to minimize the impact. Um, but what I think, you know, one of the, the popular and useful mantras in invasive species management is uh, prevention is containment and containment is prevention. So one of the things that, that managers try to do is to prevent an introduction if at all possible. Um, but if you have an introduction, then you wanna try to minimize its spread over the landscape to new, to new waters. So you can institute containment actions. And so in the West, uh, uh, you know, very useful containment actions include things like watercraft boat inspections, where if a reservoir, for example, um, is infested with zebra or quagga, or quagga mussels, then oftentimes uh, some states make it mandatory that every boat that leaves that water body is thoroughly inspected and then given a seal to show that it was inspected and passed inspection. And so by doing that containment action, they are minimizing the potential for that invasive to spread to new waters. And so that's one of the things that, that managers could consider, you know, if there is an environmental DNA early detection, um, and uh, especially if they're able to follow that up with an actual visual confirmation, yet they don't have an effective eradication tool, um, a tenable option would be for them to consider containment. So, you know, maybe we can't do much about this water body, but we can sure do a lot to help other water bodies from having this invasive. That's great. And I think it gives us a great overview of, you know, the, both the technology, um, how it can be deployed, and then, you know, its ultimate value uh, for managers and others. Uh, let's talk a little bit, uh, just to close it out, you know, about what is next for the program. You know, where are you in the, you know, rollout right now? Um, you know, what are you looking forward to? I think you've already discussed, you know, with the laboratory network, um, you know, some of that potential. Uh, but what should we keep an eye out for coming up? You know, right now we are transitioning from, or we're very focused on uh, making Auto samplers, cheaper, easier to use, and robust. Uh, so I think as I said at the beginning of the interview, this is not new technology. So we've been working with Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and they have been using this auto sampling eDNA-like technology in the ocean and the deep ocean at that for 25 plus years. Um, but it's very complicated 
the the robots that they have been using in the deep ocean weigh hundreds of pounds and have to be moved around with boatside cranes. Um, and they require uh, um, very specific expert knowledge to, 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 to use and to fix if they break. And so we've been working with uh, the, the Monterey uh, Group and Bari to try to uh, uh, make these robots ready for implementation and application. So to us, that means folks like you and I need to be able to use them without help from uh, you know, expert computer and electrical and robotic engineers. So we need to be able to use them. If they break, we need to be able to fix them with uh, off-shelf parts that we can purchase, you know, through Amazon or wherever, instead of you know things that require customized 3D printing. Um, we uh, need to make them much cheaper uh, because one of the tricks here is being able to get them in that network fashion, which means we need a lot of them. So we need to decrease the price point. Um, and we need to, uh, uh, you know, find find ways to uh, get managers interested and excited about them to implement them into to their programs. So that that's where a lot of our current focus here is 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 kind of moving that that technology from R and D to application. And so, um, you know, Monterey Bay um, has made a lot of success on refinements to their sampler. Uh, they've gone from something that they've been using in the ocean that was a couple of hundred pounds and a 50 gallon drum to uh, a unit that is about the size of carry-on luggage that will hopefully be you know, closer to 100 pounds, if not lighter, um, and has a graphic user interface that you can access um, you know, through your phone um, or, or, or through a tablet to do all the programming. Uh, it doesn't require any fancy coding. Uh, so that's that's where a lot of the emphasis is right now is is uh, really trying to make these uh, these robots cheaper, easier, um, and very robust. No, that's really cool, and I I, I definitely appreciate the detail. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I've, I've learned a lot about this, and I'll also link to our uh, link for our listeners so that they can learn more as well. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.